0: That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family. Ladies and gentlemen, until then, enjoy the show.
1: Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to acknowledge conventions such as WeedonCon, WhedonCon is a fan-generated charity event for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, and all Joss Whedon creations. It is scheduled for October of 2020 and is held in Los Angeles, California. A portion of the proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. See details at WeedenCon.com. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we're going to welcome Frank Cifaldi, a video game preservationist. And let's get started right away. On mic today, we have Frank Cifaldi. How are you doing this fine morning, sir? Good, how are you? I am fantastic. I am really eager to talk to you because I don't get enough gaming content on this channel, and hopefully this will be a good chance to change that a little bit now you are a gaming historian just to start uh
0: yeah i think that's fair um i yeah, i've uh, been a journalist in the industry going back to something like 2003 maybe um but uh i've i've always been sort of focused on on the, the preservation angle of it so yeah by extension i guess calling me an historian's fair i've, I've done some published work but uh you know, there's also the part of me that's like, well, I don't write very often anymore, so I don't know if this is the right term. <laughs> you know? I I, it's I, fair. Okay, sure. Let's call me in a story. Let's go for it.
1: A preservationist is good. Now, it's it's weird because I have always loved gaming ever since I backed the original NES, and I've been into preservation since the day I upgraded from that and said, well, I don't want to leave my old stuff behind. Right. But, but, I feel like I went to sleep one day mm-hmm. in the not too distant past when nobody else cared about preservation, and I woke up in the morning and everybody cared about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel that way sometimes too. I mean, when do you think that shift happened? Because I don't even know. I really think it was less than five years ago. Yeah. I think it was um, I think it was when companies started actually, republishing their back catalogs in mass as opposed to it being a niche product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I agree with you. Like even if, 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 if that were the case, you know, even some of the things I worked on kind of contributed that to that a little bit. Um, because I, I had a, I had a brief, uh, career, um, designing and, and, uh, producing, collections of classic games and and we always had that sort of like preservation angle in the pr where we tried to dig up all the concept art and the stories and stuff like that and yeah i think you're right i think people are really starting to pay attention to this stuff i think they're understanding that um a lot of uh material is volatile and, and endangered and and is probably lost um and and i think well i think another thing that kicked it off that that scared people a lot um was the disappearance of PT. Uh, do you know PT? I don't. So PT was uh, a free demo that Konami put out on the PlayStation uh, 4 um, that was sort of a stealth demo you didn't know until the very end. It was a preview of a new Silent Hill game that, mm-hmm. uh, that got canceled and then they pulled the demo from the store forever. So I think a lot of people, uh, their first taste of fear that, that video game history could disappear from under them was the sudden inability to ever play, uh, PT again. You know, this Mm -hmm. was a big project. This was, um, Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Kojima, like co-producing a, a Silent Hill game, you know, and then it's it's been wiped from by its by its uh, corporate owner from from existence. So I, I, I kind of trace a lot of it to that too. But I digress. No,
1: no, it's it's actually a really good digression because, uh, I mean, for most of my life, the attitude was always, well, who cares if Big Shooter Three is out now because Big Shooter Four is right around the corner. I don't yeah. care about <laughs> Big Shooter 2, 1, 2, and Three anymore. Yeah. And now suddenly it's like the world woke up. It's like I don't want to lose those old games. I'm just amazed at how widespread the shift was and how quickly it happened after people like you and I felt like this forever.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with that for sure. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's not been very hard to convince people, uh, that video game history is important and we should save it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's made my life a little bit easier. Agreed. Agreed. Um, would you compare
1: it to film preservation or art preservation of any other kind?
0: Um, you mean the state of it or the state or of how it? Uh, do it? Mm. Not only
1: really um, do it, but maybe the, the mindset behind it, the priorities behind it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to, uh, there's some comparisons you can make to film preservation. And, and I often do that are fair. Um, I think the one that makes the most sense is when we talk about um, what the Film Foundation usually talks about, which is that, I forget the stat, but it's something like 80% of movies American cinema made before 1929 is gone now. It just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason it doesn't exist anymore is because back then, uh, there was no reason to keep it. Uh, There was no reason for a studio to have an archive of film, because back then... You'd make the movie, you'd print reels, you'd sell them to theaters, and you'd wipe your hands of it. You'd be done, right? There, Mm -hmm. there was no sense of re-releasing a movie because no one wants to watch an older movie. Uh, There was no secondary market, right? There's no television broadcast rights. There's not even television, right? There's no home video. There's nothing. There was no secondary market. Um, We don't see studios start to uh, keep their films around until we've start seeing that secondary market, um, which I I believe started with uh, people wanting to uh, see movies again in the theater after they were done. Um, And I think the same exact thing happened to video games in the early days when uh, coding a game was a direct communication with the machine itself. Like if you're making an NES game, a Sega Genesis game, you are writing, you know, machine language code to talk to that specific machine and the thought of archiving that for some future use, you know, I'm sure in the back of a lot of people's heads, they knew it was important and tried, but there was very little incentive for a company to maintain that archive uh, because there was not really a sense of like, well, we'll do a remaster on the next platform. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, that wasn't really a thing for a long Mm -hmm. time. And I would say that that hasn't really been a thing in the industry uh, in any major way until the last, I mean, you might be onto something like five-ish years or so, right? That Where the idea of an HD remaster on the next gen became kind of understood. So I think that the big companies are probably doing an okay job now uh, archiving uh, the raw material that went into making their games. But I think that prior to... Uh, maybe this last generation um, that it was kind of rare, and and when we tend to see, um, the archives still exist for an older game, it's usually because someone took it home, like someone literally like stole from work, mm-hmm. and that's another good film history comparison too, because you often find like lost movies or Doctor Who episodes or whatever like in someone's closet forgotten, you know? And, and, and so the, you, you see that as well, but uh, where, where I think the comparison falls apart a little bit um, is that in Hollywood or, or, or even television production um, you tend to see, you know, more of a studio system, right? Where there's maybe like five major companies that own everything, you know, mm-hmm. If that, I don't, I think they're all owned by Disney now, but, uh, you know, you tend to see not very many companies and they have their own archives, whereas in video games, uh, mm-hmm. y- publishers have come and gone rapidly for the entire duration of this industry. And so, um, a lo- you know, a lot of that material kind of died with them and, and didn't have a new home to go to. And so is lost forever.
1: I'm also just thinking here while you're talking, I'm I'm thinking that, you know, in television, for the majority of the material ever made, advertising paid for it and the consumers got it free. And with video games, it's almost the exact opposite. You usually bought most of your games outright. And I'm wondering if that ever played into the fact that, the, you know, with video games, you knew that the customer, was the person who was viewing it was your customer directly and you wanted to offer them as much as possible.
0: Yeah, and um, that actually is the bright side to video game preservation is that um, most of the older titles were directly sold to the consumer, unlike film, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we are in a fortunate position, actually, where most of video game history, if you know where to look, if you uh, are comfortable with emulation, etc., um, most of video game history you can actually revive and play mm-hmm. uh, if if you're willing to put in the work to do it uh, but <clears throat> excuse me um, what I think we're in danger of losing though is not the playable games themselves it's the context to understanding those games um, and that's what most of my work focuses on is uh, preserving not just the playable game, but understanding how it was made, why it was made, who it was made for, what people uh, who played it at the time sort of thought about it, right? Just mm-hmm. contextualizing these things. and um going back to the film comparison because in the games industry, like we we uh, we can't help but do this, um, it's like I don't know, Citizen Kane's kind of a good example where it's it's an enjoyable movie on its own. Um, mm-hmm. But if you understand the context in which it was made, if you understand who William Randolph Hearst was, mm-hmm. uh, if you understand who Orson Welles was, if you understand that rivalry, then that movie becomes a different work entirely. Like mm-hmm. it, it is, a, a, it transforms that work. Um, and so, you know, I think in a lot of cases, you can probably say the same about a lot of works so that if you understood them, uh, it, 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 it transforms their meaning completely. And, and I, I want to see a world where we understand games beyond the level of just, uh, a consumer buying a product and, and understand the, the thought processes that went into them and the decision-making and things like that. So that's why, um, in my line of work, what we tend to focus on a lot are, trying to rescue those raw materials that went into making the game so that if an historian is you know writing the book on the making of Super Mario Brothers or whatever they mm-hmm. they, they might be able to access material that would support a book about the making mm-hmm. of Super Mario Brothers.
1: And Super Mario Brothers being an interesting example, I know you yeah. put in to somebody who doesn't follow this stuff, you put in a crazy amount of effort
0: into just figuring oh. out the exact day the game was released. Yeah, I did. Um, I was trying to prove a point. So this was years ago when I was the editor at a uh, a website called Gamma Sutra. Uh, no, I didn't name it. Um, that was a well, still is. It's it's a resource for people who make games as sort of news and features and and, uh, tutorials and things like that to help people make better games. But um, we also were interested in the history of where game development came from, so we would report on that stuff too. And the point I was trying to prove is just how little we know about video game history. And I I, I happened to see on a Super Mario uh, fan site um, that no one had really been able to substantiate exactly when the game was first available in the u s, and I spent, yeah, you're right. I spent a good couple of weeks um calling everyone I knew who was at Nintendo at the time, um, calling Toys R Us because they had corporate records, uh, going back to FAO Schwartz, where the the system and the game were first sold, um, and just trying to substantiate a date when Super Mario Brothers was sold, which was, you know, that's, uh to switch analogies to comics right like i i think of super mario brothers as like action comics number 1 right like that's the to me the birth of what we think of as video mm-hmm. games now as opposed to the things before um and i was unable to substantiate the release date for super mario brothers um but yeah and and, and, I, and I mean I, I brought that up as an example it's kind of a bad one cuz i don't expect Uh, the iron curtain to ever be lifted from Nintendo's internal archives. I don't think we're ever going to really get a peek inside uh, beyond what they're willing to show us. Mm -hmm. But, but as an, it it is a good example of a book of a, sorry, of a game to me, that's worthy of its own, you know, documentary history book, uh, et cetera, on shelves. Um, And that's something that we at the video game history foundation, which is the charity that I run, we, we bring that up a lot that if you, well, if you were, if you were able to go to a bookstore right now and you looked at the shelves, you know, you like, if you went to, um, which one's still around Barnes and Noble, Borders mm-hmm. Guide, Barnes, yep. okay. If you went to Barnes and Noble right now, and, and I have, and I, we took pictures of this, you know, for like presentations and stuff, you go to the music section, right? There's just like three gigantic shelves full of like biographies of musicians and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, critical things theory and stuff like that right um go to film it's the same thing right there's like six books about citizen kane like in print right now you know um and then you go to the game section and it's literally like art books and strategy guides you know Mm -hmm. there's some game history books yes but uh it hasn't hit that critical mass where you can just go to the bookstore and grab a video game history book very often and and when you do it tends to be like the overarching corporate history of all of video games, as opposed to like uh, a book about a specific game. Now we've seen some good stuff. We've seen, you know, these, uh, I don't know if you've seen boss fight books. They do these small books that focus on individual games. We've seen some, um, but it's just, it's not nearly what we see for anything else. And, And we think it's because there's just no material to reference to do this kind of work.
1: I remember for the longest time, and I mean only until about three, four years ago, if you talked about video game history books, you you would have Zap, you'd have The Phoenix, yep. and you would struggle to come up with a number three.
0: Yeah, you'd get uh, Stephen Kent's book, uh, I forget what it's called, Ultimate History of Video Games, and then uh, David Sheff's Game Over, and that's that's it. Forgot about Game <laughs> Over, a- okay. so you, Mas- even on Masters forgot. of Doom, Masters yeah. of Doom. That was the other. Like, there's a. There were about like ten that was just like that's the canon. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's true. And again, going back to those books, it's like they most of them weren't uh focused on specific things. They were more like overarching views of, uh, typically the high level business dealings of video games as history, right? As opposed to, uh, the artistry of video games, right? Or the evolution even of like playing games. I don't even know if I've seen really good critical work on the evolution of game players. Right. And and we just, that should exist. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of interest. Almost every old console has been re-released in miniature form as of this recording. Mm -hmm. Um, And people just buy them up like crazy. Uh, I think there's a massive interest in video game history that is, Uh, going unserved. I I I think that even comes down to simple merchandising, right? Like I I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, I don't know why there's not like Funko pop figures for fans of like Castlevania or whatever. You know, just like there's there's just this weird dearth of, of 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 video game history being celebrated and available versus the what I think is a tremendous audience for this sort of thing. Um and it's and it's weird. And 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 that's kind of what we're you know hoping to uh, change in the world is is uh, make give, giving uh, more resources uh, to people to to be able to understand and contextualize the stuff. And I think that there's now
1: a, a a desire on the part of some people to who haven't played games in years to at least not play what's out there now, but maybe to reach back to something they were comfortable with, something that. They would like to experience again, and we just now are giving them the tools to do that commercially.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think um, a lot of what we call like lapsed gamers—people um, who maybe played games in their youth and stopped because they became parents or whatever—I um, think a lot of those people look at modern games and and only really see the ones that are being pushed to them the sort of gigantic you know multi million dollar budget uh prestige titles uh and i think if what you're used to is is a more bite sized experience <clears throat> excuse me um that the thought of playing these games you know sometimes you might even try to play those games and um this is not at all a slam against modern game design, but uh, games have gotten the, the triple a top tier games have gotten a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And there's, you know, there's sort of this expected, like even hour long ish tutorial in a lot of these games, stuff like that. And, um, and again, this is not an insult. It's just that to your point, uh, a lot of people I think are, missing what games used to be uh not because they were better but because you know you couldn't do an hour-long interactive tutorial and multiple system designs and things like that Mm -hmm. on on a 16 bit platform right um so i do think a lot of people start looking backwards um i wish they would start looking under the hood instead at the incredible work being (laughs) done by indie developers right now Mm -hmm. yeah um but Uh, I I think I agree. A lot of people are looking backwards for some kind of comfort uh, for the way games used to be for sure. And, and I think that um, for the most part, the way the industry has responded to that is to just dig up the same list of like 100 games that the publishing rights are easy to clear up for and just like keep shoveling them out at like $8 a pop and hoping for the best, um, which is uh, I talk about that all day with my work with Digital Eclipse, but I don't, I don't know if you want to go there. Well, <laughs> I'm up <laughs> for anything. Uh, but it, yeah, I agree
1: with you there. It does seem to me like there could be, I don't want to say innovation because that's I'm not saying we have to just reinvent the wheel, but I think a lot of people would benefit from having access to, like you said, the 100 games right off the bat when they get a new piece of hardware. And then from there branch off into something else
0: yeah maybe but i also think that when people buy these retro consoles they play them for half a day and then put them in the closet you know i don't think i think people don't actually want to play old games i think they think they want to play old games i think they want to have a nostalgia rush and feel good and then move on with their lives. Um so I don't I don't know that I think people are actually clamoring to revisit the classics in any meaningful way. I think that when people uh actually sit down and like play through an old game, I think that's you know to me that's the equivalent of people who are into old movies. It's a niche thing. It, it, it's mm-hmm. a, it's an acquired taste, right? And um I I worked for a company briefly called GameTap um, it was a Turner Broadcasting product in like the, the mid-aughts, like 2005 to maybe 2007, something like that. I remember uh, hearing about this. Yeah, so we were a Games on Demand. It was a subscription rate. You paid us, I think, $10 a month, and you got a client that gave you access to a 1,000 games going all the way back to uh, like Combat on the Atari. Mm-hmm. Um, and the behavior we found is that almost no one's stuck on an old game. Uh, everyone launched Pac-Man once, mm-hmm. you know, but no one like tried to actually learn and master Pac-Man, right? That, that Like, I think those days are past. Um, but I think that, I don't think people want to, okay. Okay. We are getting into this. Here we go. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you, you, you got me going on this. Hey, that, so, that's great. Um, I think that we, well, I know we don't play games the way we used to. We don't get an old game. um, And that's our only source of entertainment for the next two months. You know what I mean? Other than watching broadcast TV. I think the idea of just handing a a game as it was to someone and going, have fun. You're going back to your youth. I think that's a flawed idea. Um, I think people want, to experience the joy they remember. But I, I think that for the most part, older games just cut and pasted as is, is not the path toward that. Um, so when I've worked on commercial projects where we have reintroduced old games, um, I've tried to make products that Well, what we always said at Digital Eclipse when I worked on the games was that uh, we want people to feel like they got their money's worth even if they didn't even play the games that are on here. So what we tried to do was hand you a product that was less just a compilation of games and more of like an interactive coffee table book about the games. Um, So for example, uh, the last product that, that i produced um, and and directed was called snk 40th anniversary collection mm-hmm. um, and that was a product of games by a publisher called snk um, that most people remember them for the neo geo system for things like uh, king of fighters uh and even though they didn't make it they, they, they think of like metal slug and stuff like that um but we had an opportunity to spotlight what SNK was before that, all the games they made in the 70s and 80s. And um, so when we made that product, uh, I came at it from the perspective of thinking that there wasn't much of an existing fan base for these games specifically, but there was an audience of people interested in the history of SNK. And so what we did was... Rather than pretend that these were hot titles and we could sell a product based on the merits of it having these games, uh, we tried to put together the definitive package uh, for the video game history fan of what this company was, uh, because that had never really been captured. No one had ever, like, there's almost nothing out there uh, before this product about the making of Ikari Warriors, Athena, things like that, Um, Psycho Soldier. Um, So we put together a compilation and uh, luckily SNK was really cool about letting us choose titles that frankly weren't even very good in some cases because we felt that they represented the artistry of SNK. Mm-hmm. By being included in this compilation as opposed to just finding the ones that are fun now. So things like uh, we 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 got to include a game called uh, Joyful Road, which is like a game about driving a car that has arms and is like eating fruit off the side of the road and like throwing the apple rinds in the trash as it's as it's running from the police. Just this weird game that's like not that good. That is but, so 80s. Yes, it's it's a, it, but it's it, exactly and it represents this company at, at their experimental prime. Um, and within that product, we have the sort of interactive history book going through all of, even even the games that aren't in the compilation, we show them at least, we tell you what they were. If we know anything about how they were made or who made them, we kind of give you that information. And and again, like to me, that's the way you present older games to people who are interested in the history is to give them basically uh, uh, you know you could say coffee table book or a virtual museum or whatever however you want to say it because I think um, and I've given to industry talks at GDC about this I think the audience for people who just want to be handed an old game to play uh, that audience ages out real quick you know like I I, I think you yeah <laughs> like exactly um, I, I think there's only so many times you can charge me eight dollars for essentially MAME with one game on it uh, before I burn out and stop buying. Um, And I think we need to think a little bit harder about what it is that people actually want when they think they want old games, which is, you know, my perspective is the celebratory history. And another feature we added real quick, um, and I'm not trying to sell the game, I don't get any money from it, um, is for every game in the collection, I actually recorded a playthrough of the game that you can just watch instead. So you don't even have to play oh. the game. So you could just watch me play and you could scrub through it like a movie. And at any point you can take the controller away from me and just jump in and play it. That's um, yeah. It's it's a really cool feature. But to me again, I don't think people want to really learn <clears throat> how to play tank or whatever. There's a tank game on there. that's actually really interesting, but I don't think people are actually going to sit down and learn that game uh, is what I suspect. But mm-hmm um if you're able to watch it and scrub around and like just passively observe it and if you want even like take control and try that part yourself to see how it works uh i think instead of being again handed a game and being told like hey kid good luck pretend it's the 80s you know <laughs> like I, I think that then helps you to understand and contextualize a game way better than uh, Than just be, kind of being handed a quarter and a joystick and saying go, um, so I don't I don't know where we were going with this, but uh, uh, you know I, I think that the the common commercial way of re-releasing an old game I I I, I like to liken it to um, you familiar with the story, store called Big Lots? Yes. So yes. when I used to shop at Big Lots it, near the checkout stands. There were like these packs of like 400 cowboy movies on DVD for twenty dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and like to me that's what that that's what most game publishers do with their legacy of content is just like bundle them up without thinking, and just like here's a here's here's a value pack of of old stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's sort of the. The uh, the hook is that it's a good value, and I think that that's just cheapening these old titles, um, and creating a situation where people just think of them as cheap as opposed to something worth actually uh, looking back on. So that's my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my uh, that's two GDC talks uh, condensed to about five minutes or whatever. Well, that was <laughs> that was really good. <laughs>
1: I, I, I do kind of wonder, I mean, because I haven't worked in development for a very long time, uh, but part of me wonders if, like, the magic bullet is to manage to take Skyrim, condense it down so you can play it with an NES controller, and then cut off the tutorial. I mean, would that be just the magic spell that that, that everybody can like? or
0: That brings lapsed gamers back into video games? Yeah. Um, it's Uh hypothetical. I Well it's you're still if, if it's skyrim no matter how much you simplify the mechanics it's still uh a game that uh costs an absurd amount to make and you know has to be marketed to an audience and i don't think that um i don't think that alienating the uh, substantial market that exists for complicated games uh in order to bring back uh lapsed gamers is probably probably a pretty bad commercial move um Uh, fair enough but i there's been some interesting attempts i think to bring back lapsed gamers i think i think the only one that worked was the wii uh but it only worked for like five minutes um because you know every parent bought a wii and bought like wii fit and then never bought another game so you know it, it did it did well for nintendo but not the rest of the industry um you might have seen that there's an attempt right now uh, to bring back the Intellivision brand as a family console. I've seen um, that. I interesting. Have opinions. Yeah. Same. Um, interesting idea. Uh, I, I don't think it's realistic, but it's, it's a, a bare minimum, it, it is at least an attempt to make a commercial console product uh, to, uh, appeal to a market that we see uh, as being lapsed. Uh, personally, I, I just don't think it's it's much of a market. I don't think there's a lot of people who are going to spend a lot of money and like get back into video games as a hobby if they've already left it. I think that train is uh, has left the station. Fair enough. But, but that's that's just my 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 blunt commercial opinion. I'm happy to be wrong.
1: Yep. Uh- I, I would love to be wrong, too. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about the release of Super Mario Brothers, and I might have a historical nugget, a fairly insignificant one, but okay. you might enjoy hearing this. Let's go. One of my close personal friends is the first person in the state of Oklahoma to ever play Super Mario Brothers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. How, how do you substantiate that? What does that mean? Okay.
1: When, before the actual 1985 test market release of the Nintendo console. Yeah. His father was working for the what would eventually become the distributor for the console in the state, and he got to bring the console home to play before it was finished with the test market. Okay. So cool. probably so, not the first person in the country, but the first person in this state, the the only console that was in the state was in his house.
0: Nice. Does he still have it? No. Okay, because <laughs> so I was gonna say that low serial number is gonna gonna do good for him on eBay.
1: At least I don't <laughs> think so, but I could ask.
0: You should ask because okay. he might have. I mean, people are uh, those NES collectors are pretty hardcore, and uh, there's there is a database of like lowest serial numbers and where they live, and he might have
1: a really good one. <laughs> I didn't know the thing about the serial numbers. That's new to me.
0: Yeah. Excuse me. Yep. So,
1: but yeah, NES collecting—I that was where I really got into, you know, preservation and history. And I was one of those people. I want a full set, and I left that idea behind a while back.
0: Now, <laughs> me too, uh, long time ago for me. I, I actually have a, I have a moment where it stopped, like a very specific moment. Um, so this was, I'm talking like early 2000s. Like I was collecting games when you could actually just kind of go to thrift stores and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was. I think 2002 or something, um, I had just left a a Funco land um, where I had purchased a complete inbox copy of Home Alone 2 on the NES. Um, And I opened the trunk of my car and I set it down and I just kind of stared at Macaulay Culkin's face for a second and I'm like, I'm never gonna play this. Like I'm I'm I have no why do I need to own this why is this going in my house and taking up space like what am I doing here and and I and I sold off my collection uh months later almost in its entirety um but yeah I, I, I had the same sort of um I think I started also with just like oh I remember the NES I want to recapture the NES and then just kind of you know got bored and moved on quickly from that and and tried to figure out the the larger issues when it came to preservation. Well, that's
1: actually the exact reason I wanted to reach out to you and get you on here because when I really got hardcore into NES collecting, it was the mid to late 90s. The NES was just finally disappearing off the store shelves and I found things like NES World on the internet, TSR's Internet Archive, NES Nation, all those little oddball Low print run games, foreign release.
0: NES world is still going, by
1: the way. Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> but I was like, I realized there was this huge, huge mystery world behind, specifically the Nintendo. I found out later, it doesn't really exist for the Super Nintendo or the Genesis, but yeah. the NES is like the freaking Twilight Zone of video game consoles.
0: Oh yeah, and, and I ha- go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah. I mean, to your point, like there's there's this world we didn't know of until the internet of like porn games on the Nintendo and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I need to get every one of these
1: games because somebody has to have them. And it was years later I realized, okay, there's other people doing this too. It's not all on me. And I was thankful. Yeah. If I hadn't found out people like you and Pat Contry and all those other guys who are cataloging and archiving, I'd still be doing it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's... It's something that is kind of hard to grasp for a lot of people with the charity I run specifically the video game history foundation we have we have a really large archive of video game stuff um we have you know almost every uh american video game magazine for example right we have a lot of books we have a lot of press material things like that but we don't collect retail games we just don't bother and the reason is exactly what you're saying it's people have done that already, you know, like there, there's a very vibrant, healthy market of collectors who are collecting games. Um, So why do we need to also do that? What is that? What does that get us? You know, like I, so we just don't bother collecting retail games unless it's, yeah, there's some weird rare exceptions. Like um, we have a box in storage that was donated of like, complete in box classic Macintosh games and it's like Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of people who are actually collecting this stuff and for us you know we accept stuff like that and it's like we we might not be the forever home for these we might not bother but let's at least like keep them in a safe place and if there's a if there's a home that makes more sense later we'll place it um but yeah we don't you know I've been offered things like you know big boxes of you know complete inbox super nintendo games or whatever and then i've told i've told them that you know we <laughs> I, I, i'm always up front it's like if you want to donate those to us so that we can sell them cool <laughs> you know like we're, we're happy to do that but um if you're looking for a permanent home for these we, we just don't bother because it's it's there's so many more permanent homes uh um not just the collectors, but, you know, places like uh, the Strong Museum of Play, for example, collects retail games. So, like, let's funnel them over there. Um, the Made Museum here in Oakland even um, collects retail games. There's universities that collect retail games. They're, those are fine. We collect the things that no one else is really focusing on. And, but it... Go ahead. Oh, but I, I just, I, 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 I got sidetracked a little bit because you were talking about the weird, hidden world of the NES, and, like, mm-hmm. that's... That's still something that's interesting to me. And um, last year, I put a lot of effort into what I thought was the final frontier of of the like hidden NES stuff, um, which is that a lot of these like what we call plug and play systems, these controllers that you just plug into a TV and you put batteries in, um, a lot of those are actually running. A clone of the NES hardware. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of plug-and-play systems that totally fell through the cracks that had original software written for the NES, embedded on them that were trapped in these things. Some of them really? were licensed. Oh, yeah. There's weird license stuff. There's um there's a Sesame Street plug and play that's just like brand new Elmo games that are on the NES. <laughs> like there's um I'm, I'm trying. I'm having a hard t- time thinking. There's a there's an American Idol NES based system. <laughs> you know, okay. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of stuff so, like uh, Golden Nugget Casino. Um, there's a in, in 2005, um, Majesco released a plug and play system that was running NES under the hood and mm-hmm. had brand new Konami games on it. So like uh, Frogger for the NES came out in 2005, but it's so- like people don't. Think of it as an NES game because it's not on a cartridge. It's like hidden sure, in this but thing. but
1: you're you're talking about the the actual game that's on the plug and play. It's not a, a separate hidden game that isn't correct. accessible. Okay, correct. Okay. So what I'm I saying have...
0: is, if you got the data off of that plug and mm-hmm. play, you could burn it on a cartridge and play it in your NES.
1: I, I really think that that should be done. That, that there should be some sort of either. Some sort of flash flashcard or a giant multi-card <laughs> of these things should be made. I know it'll be illegal as heck. I don't even care. <laughs>
0: well, there, there are luckily some good preservation efforts mm-hmm. um, to to get the data off of these. Um, and uh, it's come. I was like, I, I just donated a bunch of them last year. But my point is that last last year, maybe the year before, I started really just doing like the weirdest hacky like eBay and Amazon searches you could, just trying to find all of them. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I feel pretty I mean I, I just found another one a few months ago, so I'm not done. I don't I don't know if it's ever done, but you know, I I found a lot of systems that people just didn't know about that had new NES games on them. My favorite is actually uh one called King Fishing, and it's mm-hmm. a fishing reel that's an NES inside and it has a brand new fishing game in it. And it actually reads like tilt, so you can you can cast your lore by flicking. Mm-hmm. Um and then when you crank, when you crank the reel, you can hear it clicking. And all it's really doing is just hitting one of the buttons, probably A or something, like really fast. And that's how it determines how fast you're, you're reeling. You know, it's just really inventive use of the NES. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> it's, as, as an historian or archivist or whatever you want to call me, it's like, you know, I, I try to focus on the things that are actually important to people. But... Mm-hmm. You have to go down these rabbit holes of things that tickle you personally, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I, I have spent some company resources uh, uh, building an archive of of uh, terrible plug and play consoles that happen to have NES hardware inside. Did,
1: did you have? Did you manage to get a hold of the Phallic Spider Man game? Uh,
0: that's not NES, so I didn't. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was you
1: I, I would like to play it, but I don't want to have that on my shelf. <laughs>
0: uh that might be in mame actually because there's been if you follow mame development lately uh a lot of work is actually being put in right now to these plug-and-play systems um so i'm pretty sure that the spider-man one is in mame uh that uses that uses hardware that's common in plug-and-plays but is original to plug-and-plays uh i believe it's called the sun plus something like that um but uh yeah, I'm familiar with the Phallax Spider-Man joystick. It's awful.
1: What about the first, very, very, very first Atari flashback unit? That was NES, was it not? It
0: was, yes. Okay.
1: Has <laughs> that been dumped yet? Yeah, because I would love to have that on a cartridge.
0: I can't remember. I sent it. I sent it to Sean Riddle. And the thing about these plug and plays is that it's either a you can or you can't with getting the data off using current methods. Um and I think that one's dumped now. I think we have Atari Flashback now. Um, so I, I sent that to him uh, to to uh, digitize, and I don't know if it's made its way into the main sets yet or not. But but yes, I <laughs> yes now that you ask, yes, I I I did personally uh, <laughs> like, help make that happen uh, <laughs> if it happened. I'm pretty sure it did.
1: Awesome. I'm gonna look for that. Okay, Frank. Um, I know you've got a big schedule up today i don't want to take too much of your time but i really appreciate you being here yeah where can people follow your archiving efforts and other adventures of yours on the internet
0: yeah sure so really the the charity that i founded four years ago we're called the video game history foundation and where we are on the web is Mm gamehistory.org um was so thrilled that no one had taken that uh i was just felt miraculous when i tried that It was like you know you put that into the 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 who is and it's just like really like no no one has gamehistory.org um so that's where we are gamehistory.org uh we are a charity that is i'm trying to trying to i still don't have my elevator pitch down i really should after three years uh But essentially, we are trying to make sure that when people are trying to tell the story of video games that they actually have material to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, what that means is uh, collecting materials that we feel are volatile that could slip through the cracks and disappear. Um, So, for example, I mean, this one's a little bit easier than most of what we do, but we are building uh what we think will be the first dedicated library in the US to study the history of video games um we're not there yet just in terms of like i just i can't hire library staff i can't even hire myself yet you know like, like we're we're not well funded enough to entertain researchers but i mean we're you know we're we're sitting in in my office it's just full oh my. right now well, that's one of six shelves um <laughs> um so we're building that, but we're going a little bit beyond that too. We're we're trying to build out not just the magazines and books, but the material that they used. Uh, so we've been digging up things like, um, I'm trying to see if I have, I do have some on me. Um, so for example, we're trying to find all the like art that video game publishers sent to the magazines. Cause a lot of that stuff just doesn't exist anymore um so I, I have on me a binder uh from GamePro. this is uh GamePro kept a good art archive of, of publisher art and so there's a lot of just you know high resolution artwork in in these cds oh my uh, four games going back to like 96 something like that um and we feel a lot of that stuff well we know a lot of that stuff's endangered you know i've sent art to artists and have that and had them go oh my god i thought this was gone you know? Um, so we're, we're, we're focusing on stuff like that. Um, and we're also focusing on, I was, you know, we talked a lot about video game source material source code. Um, that's probably going to be our big push for this year is, is a video game industry initiative, uh, letting everyone know like, Hey, your old stuff, like that concept art you drew, you know, your design notes, your 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 raw code things like that like that stuff's actually important and there's a home for it now let's start working together and figuring this out um, so that's where we're focused now we just published something um, the sort of a preview of what we're doing with the source code push um, which is that we just helped the family of of a deceased engineer Chris Oberth uh, who unfortunately passed in 2012. Uh, we just helped his uh, surviving family go through the archives that he left behind. He left behind floppy disks and tapes and things like that. Um, and we actually rebuilt um, from his source code, a game for the NES that never shipped um, days of thunder. Yes. So it it's a game based on days of thunder, the Tom Cruise movie. Yes, there is a days of thunder that was shipped on the NES. This is the first one that wasn't shipped that they, mm-hmm. they, they put it, they put in a drawer and, and started over. Um, and the point isn't like that we unearthed this amazing new game. That's going to make you rethink any, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, this, this would have been a hit. No, th- that's not the point. The point is that we can tell stories. Uh, we can expose work from artists that, you know, and respect. Like Chris Oberth wrote anteater, which is a really seminal arcade game you know that was that was a really important game to history it was cloned very successfully that's how successful it was um and you know this is a this is kind of a lost piece of that guy's career um so we've got a lot of content coming up uh based around that and 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 trying to figure out how do we capture as much of this raw material as we can while the people who made it are still alive because frankly there just hasn't been uh, an effort to my satisfaction to do that yet so that's what we're working on now and if if that sort of thing is interesting to you and you want to join us um come take a look gamehistory.org we've got a patreon uh discord access stuff like that if you want to come hang out
1: i'm going to make sure all of those things get linked in the show notes on my website com. great so if you missed any of it you can definitely check that out
0: cool and then i have a personal twitter too but you know it's it's mostly screaming about racial injustice right now so maybe not <laughs>
1: Well, it's there if anybody wants it. I'll make sure they can find it.
0: Cool. At Frank Cifaldi.
1: Okay, Frank, thank you so much for being here. I'll be glad to have you back anytime. This is a great chat.
0: Yeah, yeah, anytime.
1: Okay, talk to you soon. All right, bye. I would like to thank Frank for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. In honor of the video game theme of this show, I would like to play up one of my usual community building tips. One of my favorite hints for promoting this podcast is to use the share button on your device right now. If you're listening to this on a cell phone or on a tablet, there's usually a share button on the application and that's like a square with a little arrow pointing up. You can email this show or text this show to anybody who'd be interested. And I love this feature. Just pick a friend who you know would like it and send it to them. But let's play that up a little bit. Instead of texting it or emailing it, leave a post in one of your online video games, whether that be World of Warcraft or Animal Crossing. Leave a note online to go to my website or the YouTube channel, or just let them know, Hungry Trilobite, T-R-I-L-O-B-Y-T-E, or my website, www.aaronbosig.com. Give them a recommendation through a video game. Why not? Just for fun. Don't forget, all the show notes are available on my website, www.aaronbosig.com. You can email me at bossigpodcast at I strongly recommend subscribing to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.